Today we'll be continuing on in the book of Ephesians. We'll be continuing on in the book of Ephesians. So turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 today. Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. And as you get there, um, what we've been discussing thus far in Ephesians 4 has been about unity. Um, and the Bible elsewhere, right? So the scriptures in whole, not just in the book of Ephesians, but the scriptures as a whole, uh, makes clear that Christians, churches, ought to be united. And indeed, that's not just one suggestion. That's not just a suggestion to the church, right? It's not just one of many possible options for us to consider, but rather it is a command to us to be united. We are called and commanded to unity. So it's not a question of if we should be united, but how do we be united? How, how do we become united? How do we uh, stay united? And these are important questions for us to consider. And you have to consider them for your own sake, right? You as an individual Christian, if indeed you are in Christ, you have to consider what is unity, what does the command of unity mean to, for me? And we have to consider that together. What does that mean for us as a church that we are called as a church to unity? But a related question that is just as critical is, does Christ care enough about his church being united that he'll do something about it? Does Christ care enough about unity, that which he commands, to actually do something about it? And it may seem like a strange question because uh, the answer is obvious, right? He says, well, of course, right? We would say, of course, he, he does something. He must do something because he commands it. But if we were pressed, we may be hard pressed to actually give an answer, to give a description of, okay, well, then how does Christ do that? Indeed, we know from our life in the world that people often talk about unity. Like, that's an, a popular topic. Think of it in political discourse. How many times have we heard a politician say or promise, right, on the campaign trail that when I get to Washington, I'm going to work across the aisle. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to work with other, the other party and we're going to get things done. And then as soon as they get into that political office, what do they do? The same thing everyone else always does, which is, they support their own party and they stymie the efforts of the of their opponents, right? They they only work to their own goals and they ignore everything else and they work against everything else. So when I ask that question, does Christ work for the unity of his church that he commands? We might be a little cynical and say, well, yeah, he does it like the politicians do. He promises a lot and delivers nothing. Is Christ committed to not just commanding, but creating unity within his church? Well, today I want us to see in our passage that Christ gives good gifts to his people to unite them in him. Christ gives good gifts to his people to unite them in him. So let us read our passage today. Again, this is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, starting in verse 7. 
And the scripture reads, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And this is God's word. So again, unity is important within the church. Chapter 4 begins with that. Paul belabors the point that we are to be united. Uh, we go back most immediately to verse 3 of chapter 4. He calls us right part of walking manner and worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Of verse 1 is verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, and that idea of eager to maintain, that's actively doing something about it. So the call for you, Christian, is to actively do something about this issue of unity. And then he talks in verses, uh, he writes in verses 4 to 6 that we are one together, right? Why are we united? Well, because there is one body, and there is one spirit, and there is one hope, and there is one Lord, and there is one faith, and there is one baptism, and there is one God and Father of all. So one, 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 right? What's the point? There's only one. Those things which unite us together as Christians, those things which are the basis of our unity together. And today the discussion uh, that Paul is writing here to the Ephesians, right? The discussion shifts from this command to the provision to complete the command. So what does Christ do to see that his people are united? Well, let's see, see first the measure of Christ in verse 7. The measure of Christ. And verse 7 begins, but grace. And again, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's unearned favor of God. What is grace? We could look back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And remember that it is, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Right? It is through the gift of God's grace that anybody can be saved. It's grace that saves us. Right? It's not our understanding certain points of doctrine that saves us. It is grace which saves us. It's not our own doing. We don't earn grace. We cannot earn grace. To say earned grace is an oxymoron, meaning it doesn't make sense. Right? It's like jumbo shrimp. Right? That's an oxymoron. They're shrimp. They're small. Grace is a free gift of God. Right? And what do we know about gifts? Gifts are given to the people they're given, by the people they're given, and that's it. You don't just get a gift for existing, right? Your mother and father don't go out and buy gifts for everybody. They buy gifts for certain people, and they give those gifts to the people they want to give those gifts to. So with God. 
But more than just the blessing of salvation, right? The grace of salvation, his grace more, more generally is all his favor that he shows us as believers. If you are in Christ, you receive grace upon grace. The apostle John writes that in John 1, 16. John 1, 16, in his gospel, he writes, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From Christ's fullness, we have received not just some grace, not just a little bit of grace, but grace upon grace. So if you look at your life and you find blessings, right? you receive showers of blessings. If you want to go old-timey hymn here, we'll do it. It is by the grace of God. It is his goodness towards you. And certainly, if everything else in life, if, the, if our circumstances in life is like that of Job in the scriptures, whereas we have nothing and we're sitting in an ash heap and we're scraping the boils off our skin with shards of pot, right? Clay pot, just because that's what life has come to. If that's our situation, we can yet sing with King David, Surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, because it is his grace. Most immediately in our passage, as we get to this, as we look at verse 7 here, right? But grace was given to each one of us, that this grace that was given is the grace of unity. That the gift given is that of unity. That's the context here. But the grace given is the grace of unity. Unity between people is a grace of God. The reality is in our world, right, we may join together one or a few here or there, but by and large, it takes a lot of work to unify a disparate people takes a lot of work to achieve any kind of unity. I mean, think about that truth in the context of our own country, right? In the founding of our country. How about now in our country? Are we united? We call ourselves the United States. But that unity is very tenuous at best, right? Sometimes it probably only holds together because there may be a threat of force against disunity, right? Kind of that get in line or else. We see the truth of the difficulty of maintaining unity in the Bible. We could go back and think of the divided kingdom of Israel. Why did Israel divide into northern kingdom and southern kingdom? We could go back further than that. We could think of the Tower of Babel, right? Where the people came together in unity for an evil purpose. And God in judgment confused their languages. We could go back even further that, to that to the very beginning and think of the Garden of Eden. How long after mankind's first sin did it take before discord and disunity entered into the picture. 
And I'll give you a hint, it was immediate. Think about when God confronted Adam and Eve about their sin. What does Adam say? It's this woman that you gave me, Lord. And what is that evidence right there? Disunity between man and God and disunity between husband and wife. So if we find churches that are united in faith and worship of our Lord God, then what we are seeing is grace. So to ask and answer the question, how does Christ provide for his church as it comes to his command to unity? And the answer here in verse 7 is, by giving the grace necessary to achieve his command. Right? And look at the text here. It says, but grace was given to each one of us. So notice the change in kind of the, the realm of sphere of who we're talking, talking about here, right? Kind of the beginning of this chapter, it's a call to all the church. And notice now that Paul's kind of focusing in on individuals here, right? Each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each and every believer receives from Christ grace in due measure. Now, I want us to think about that last part a little bit more here, right? Because the scripture here reads, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And the thought here is, is that Christ gives grace to some more and to some less. It's in due measure. This last part is probably something we don't often think about, but it's the reality that's given in the scriptures. To some people, God gives more, and to some people, God gives less. And indeed, we have the parable of the talents, right? That's part of what what we see there in that parable. So turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. I want us to look a little bit at this parable here. And we'll start in verses 14 and 15. Matthew 25. And I'll start with verses 14 and 15 here for us. As you turn there. For it'll be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now, we may have heard, we'll pause there, we'll kind of summarize some of it, and we'll come back to the text. So keep in Matthew 25 for a moment. Now, we may have heard this parable explained in terms of talents as in abilities. And that's maybe one application of this, but that's not the immediate point in this text. What a talent is, is a sum of money. And it's actually a quite large sum of money. It's something like 20 years worth of a laborer's wage. So think 20 years of a laborer's wage. That's how much a talent is. So when we talk about this amount of money, one, the master is a very rich dude, right? He's very rich. And two, even the guy who only gets one talent's worth of money 
is receiving a large sum of money to manage. So, right, uh, the guy who got 10, man, he had a lot of money to manage for the master. But even the guy who had one had a lot of money. The parable continues to describe how these servants manage their master's money. The one who had 10 and the one who had five actually go out and double it in the time that the master is away. So they double the amount of money that their master had given to them. The last guy buried it, literally, like he buried it. He went out in the field, buried it in an old Folgers can or a bunch of Folgers cans, you know, presuming they have that then, right? But he hid it, and then when his master came back, he just gave it over to him. And the master was very angry with this one servant. And the, and the servant actually confesses, like, I was, I was afraid of you, uh, verse 25 of Matthew 25, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. I know you're a hard master, right? And he says in verse 24, you, I, you are a hard man. You do things. And the servant was so afraid of losing the money that he does nothing with it. But the master replies, prudence, wisdom, basic understanding would say, you should have at least gone and deposited it in a bank and then I could have at least had interest on it. You could have done something with it and said you did nothing with it. Even if you were risk averse, going and putting it in a safe deposit is better than burying it in a field. In the conclusion of this parable, uh, we find in verses 28 through 30, for the ones who did well, they receive a good message. They receive more. And Jesus concludes the parable in verse 28 by saying, So take the talent from him, as from the one who had one, and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what's the point? What am I trying to get at here? Uh, well, first we see that God gives more to some and less to others. And we are all to be faithful in what God has given unto us. God does not expect from us what he has not given to us to do. So what do I mean by that? Uh, if God called you, Men, if God called you to lead a church of 10,000 people and you had grace given you to that end, then God's call to you is be faithful to that end. If you, uh, parents, if God has given you 10 children, God has given you grace to be faithful in the raising of those 10 children. But if he hasn't given you a lot, it may be because of his divine wisdom, certainly. But even if we don't have a lot, what we do have, we're to be faithful with. If he gives you a million dollars, be faithful with a million dollars. If he gives you a hundred dollars, be faithful with a hundred dollars. 
There is a call and command to faithfulness in the administration of His gift of grace. We have to be faithful with what is before us. We're not all the same. right? So again, let's think about this in the context of spiritual gifts. Some people are given by the Spirit a gift of grace that is public, that is out front, that is open, that we might, or the Bible describes as honorable, and we are called to be faithful to that gift and the use of that gift. Some have been given a, uh, a spiritual gift that is less honorable, that is hidden, that is not as public, and God calls you to be faithful in the use of that gift. Uh, again, another example of this. Uh, some of we don't all have the same financial means or ability. There may be that may be for a variety of reasons. You may be a professional, right? You have a professional job. You have a doctor's license, and you're going to make a lot of money by virtue of just that that profession that you've entered into. Well, God calls you to be faithful to that. Some of you are just starting out and working, and so you do not make a lot of money. But God is calling you to be faithful in the use of that little bit of money. Some of you haven't even entered into the workforce, and all you get is an allowance every week. And God calls you to be faithful in your use of that allowance. Whatever financial means you have, be faithful in it. Another example of this. Uh, Some of you have a lot of free time. You're in a stage of life when you have an abundance of time. Some of you are single, and God gives the gift of singleness to some in order that they may glorify God with it. So in your free time, be faithful in it. Some of you don't have a lot of free time. You're busy. Your life circumstance is such that you're busy and you don't have a lot of free time. Be faithful in the use of your free time. God does not expect out of you more then you have the ability to be faithful to the gift he has given to you. So I want to be very careful with that, right? God expects faithfulness. And whatever he has given unto you, be faithful in your use of it. Redeem the time, brothers and sisters, for the days are evil. So one way we could do this is artists. If you're an artist, how can you use your artistry? For the glory of God. Artisans. How can you use your craftsmanship. For the furthering of the work of Christ's kingdom. So these are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Whatever situation. Whatever grace that has been given unto us. In due measure it has been given to us. And how are we going to be faithful. In that grace. Let us not be slothful servants are cast into the outer darkness but let us hear the savior say well done my good and faithful servant so we realize that this is the measure of christ how does christ provide for his church as it comes to unity he gives to his people measure full measure due measure of grace now let's continue and consider the filling of christ in verses 8 and 10 
of Ephesians 4. So turn back to Ephesians 4, and let's look at verses 8 through 10 and see the filling of Christ. So Paul kind of gives further explanation here, right? He begins, therefore, it says, and, and again, therefore means because of what is true above, here's what we now consider. And by referencing it says, he gives, he's talking about the scriptures here. And in particular, and you might see in your Bible a uh, note that this verse, verse 8, is in reference to or referring to Psalm 68, 18. Psalm 68, 18. But Paul here offers us a rough quote of Psalm 68, 18. And I say rough because if you go back in your Bible and you read verse 68, Psalm 68, verse 18, you will find that it doesn't read the exact same way that Paul here uh, refers to it. And one big difference is that there it talks about receiving gifts. The, there's one who receives gifts. And here in Ephesians, Paul writes that the one gives gifts. Not a receiver of gifts, he's a giver of gifts. So Paul's a liar and falsifying scripture, and we should just rip out the Pauline epistles, right? No, I don't hear any tearing yet, so I'm guessing maybe you understand that that's not how we should understand what's happening here. So before you do that, before you rip out the Pauline epistles, and, and understand, and I'll, I'll pause here and just say, well, that seems that's like silliness, uh, but I actually had a conversation when, one time with a man in a church who had... Uh, was following, listening to this teacher, and this teacher said that Paul is unreliable and he, he shouldn't be in the scriptures. And so he actually, he, he started ascribing to that. And this was one example he actually gave. He said, well, Paul quotes, says it quotes Psalm 68, 18 in the book of Ephesians. And if you go read it, it's not the same. Paul's misquoting scripture, and so we should ignore him. So I say that just in a jest of ripping out Paul, but in reality, there are some people who genuinely believe that. So what do we do about this? How, do, how should we understand what Paul is doing here with the scriptures? The first thing we have to understand that Paul is likely working from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, so the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and not the Hebrew directly. Uh, why, do I, why do I say that's important? Because it's a translation. And so this is an issue... Uh, where some, right, Hebrew is not the same as Greek. By the way, if you go look at a Hebrew text and a Greek text, you will be able to quickly ascertain Hebrew is not the same as Greek. Uh, Hebrew reads right from left, right? We read left to right. So even that is backwards, right? So, so we're dealing with different languages, with different words, and so we're doing our best to understand. Same thing we do with our English Bibles, right? English is not Greek. Although we do have some Greek derivatives in our English language, English is not Greek. And so we have to come to the scripture and we have to try and translate it and understand it in the English language as best as we can. And we're thankful to God that there are scholars who, who do that, who strive and struggle to do that accurately. So first thing is, before you disregard Paul, understand that he's working from a different copy of the scriptures than we have. The second thing is that we have to understand that the method of quoting scriptures in the time of the Bible, in the time that Paul is writing, 
is not the same way that we quote scriptures today. Uh, Paul wasn't aiming for academic accuracy in his reference because that's not his purpose. When we quote something, that's what we're aiming for. So we have to understand that there's a mindset, a perspective shift, a perspective difference. Um, we might consider it some days, some ways today, like if we're writing something, we paraphrase it. And so we don't necessarily quote the person we're paraphrasing it from, but it's close to. But if we're using the exact language, we're going to quote it, right? And we're going to have to cite our resources. For those of you who've had college or remember those days, you can probably feel the terrors of the weight of making sure you quoted things, right? And yay for MLA formatting or something like that. APA, depending on your predilections. All right, so, so Paul's not quoting it the same way that we would quote. Paul references it to convey the sense of meaning, but what Paul is also doing in referencing it is translating it for us now that Christ has come. So one of the big differences is that he's not just translating, he's interpreting. He's saying that this verse in the psalm that King David wrote actually has reference and bearing on what Christ has done. And so part of what we're seeing is not just a quote, but an interpretation of the quote. And let us not forget that Paul's writing is superintended by the Spirit of God, just as David's writing was superintended by the Spirit of God. So don't get your scissors. Don't excise Paul from the Bible. Rather, we need to understand the purpose for which Paul uses this reference and writes it. So what is Paul's point? Psalm 68 is a song of victory written by David, but it's not extolling his own valor in battle. It's actually extolling God's valor in battle, God's uh, victory. He worships and praises the Lord God who makes battle and protects the helpless. And Paul picks this up then to say that in reference to God, that's actually a reference to Christ. And Christ has won the victory. And to the victor goes the spoils. And this victor doesn't hoard the spoils for himself, but he richly shares them. He gives good gifts to his people. The king of king blesses, gives grace to whom he will. But before we get to in that portion of verse 8, right, where he gave gifts to men, but said when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, uh, or depending on your translation, it might say something like he led captivity captive, or he led captive a host of captives. And if you read it in the Greek, there's like the word captive in three different forms and like two, you know, right after each other. And you're like captive, captive, captive. Okay, got it. Uh, and the point of this seems to signify that Christ Jesus has captured and subdued the evil one and his minions. So what has Christ won victory over? What did Christ win victory over when he resurrected from the grave? He won the victory over death. He won the victory over sin. He won the victory over Satan. He has won the victory over all these things. Right? We could go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at the 
Uh, end of verse 19. According to the working of his great might, of God's great might, <coughs> that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What's the point? Right? Christ Jesus is far superior in rank and power and authority, and he is above all of these things in every name that is named. Right? So if there's anything that has been forgotten, let's gather it all together and say Christ is superior to these now, in this age, and in the ages to come forevermore. So let's praise God for that, brothers and sisters. Christ is victorious. He won the victory, and he gives to his people grace. Right? He gives gifts to men. He gives gifts to men. <coughs> Paul continues in verses 8, or I'm sorry, in verses 9 and 10 to explain verse 8. Right? So he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended? Right, so if there's an ascension, there has to be a descension. If there's an ascension, there has to be a condescension. And we see here, what does it mean by that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And this is probably the lower regions is likely the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, scholars propose three major ways to interpret these verses, and so I'm going to run through those briefly so we understand what Paul is talking about here. Uh, the first is that this is talking in reference to Christ's descent to hell. Uh, some versions of the Apostles' Creed confess Christ descended into hell, and then he rose from the grave. I would just pause here and say not every version of the Apostles' Creed had that. That shows up in the history of the use of the Apostles' Creed, uh, but I would argue it's not uh, original. Uh, also, when we talk about the Apostles' Creed, we're not talking about a creed that literally the Apostles wrote themselves, but rather we're talking about a distillation of that which is uh, oldest and therefore most closely related to the Apostles, uh, what their preaching was about. Some people also refer, so they join this verse here, Ephesians uh, 4, 8 through 10. And they join this in consideration of 1 Peter 3, 18 and following, uh, where it refers there to Christ going into hell and preaching to the spirits. Now, I'll just go ahead and say, if you read 1 Peter 3, 18 and following, you will find it a most mysterious verse to read. And so some take that verse to say that Christ actually descended into hell and preached to the spirits. So if you join 1 Peter 3 and you join Ephesians 4, 8 and following, uh, then the idea that we have there is that Christ descended into hell and then he ascended uh, eventually into the heavens and above all the heavens. Some problems with this view, but more specifically here in the book of Ephesians. Uh, the first thing that we really have to consider is when Christ spoke to the thief on the cross and said, 
What did he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Hell is not paradise, right? That's <laughs> the antithesis of that. So there would be some, some strangeness there going on to say, Christ says to the thief, you're going to be with me in heaven today, but oh, first I got to go to hell for three days and then I'll be with you. So there's some inconsistency there. If Paul wanted to refer to the grave, so the second kind of problem with that is it says here into the lower regions, we would actually expect him to write into the lowest region. Because if we kind of look at the cosmology, the, the idea of the understanding of the universe, you have the heavens, the heaven of heavens, you have the heavens, that is where we know the stars are at, you have the earth, and then you have the grave, which is below the earth. And so we would actually expect him to write he entered into the, he descended into the lowest regions of the earth. And that's someone says it just says lower regions, the earth, or lower regions of the earth. And so it's probably a reference to the earth itself. And so some translations make that more clear. The third problem in particular about understanding Paul's reference to Christ descending into hell here is that it doesn't really make sense to his point about giving gifts. Christ descended and gave gifts. How does, right, Christ ascended, he led hosts of captives, and he gave gifts to men. How does that relate to Christ going to hell? Um, it, it's unclear, the point of the author, if that's the point of the author. So that's the first interpretation. Second interpretation, Christ's descent to earth, right? So the reference to Christ descending to earth is in reference to his incarnation, right? So in talking about the, the second, or the first advent, not the second advent, the first advent. Certainly that's a less controversial uh, in the church and in, maybe not so much in the world, but that Christ descended and took on the form of human uh, flesh. Uh, so again, the meaning here is that likely that Christ descended to earth and eventually ascended to his place above the heavens. What I read earlier in Ephesians 1 makes sense with that, right? He is given a place far above all other rule. Further, that's in line with what Paul writes, for instance, to the Philippian church in Philippians 2, when he says, he writes there about Christ taking on human form, right? Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a human. However, we still run into this problem of, okay, that's great, but how does that relate to God? in Christ giving gifts to men. Perhaps it relates to Christ giving the gifts of the apostles. And there's a nod toward that in verse 11. We'll see that in verse 11. But verse 7 actually talks about giving gifts to multiple people. Right? Each one of us, verse 7, gets us a gift so the third option is, and if you couldn't tell, this is the one I land on, is Christ's ascension and then sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. That's the ascension and descension we're talking about. We know the Spirit descended on the early church on the day of Pentecost and that it was a gift and the Spirit comes with spiritual gifts, right? This especially ties into what Paul writes next in verse 11. We know that God gives spiritual gifts to his people. 1 Corinthians 12 is a, a major portion for that. 
And these spiritual gifts are that for the edification of the church. They're given for a specific purpose. And there are a variety of gifts. Right? They're not all the same. Further, so add to add further weight to this understanding is that it seems that Psalm 68 was used in the Jewish observance of Pentecost, right? Because the day of Pentecost, we know that as a Christian kind of date, but it had Jewish celebration before the Christians, uh, before the Spirit descended, right? On the day of Pentecost. And it seems that maybe Psalm 68 was sung on this date. And so it would make perfect sense then if this is the song that's in the mind of people on the day of Pentecost and to talk about Christ descending and giving gifts to men, well, that's Pentecost when the spirit came down and gave gifts to men. Now, the difficulty with that is even in my language there, who descended on the day of Pentecost? The spirit. It wasn't Christ. But not so far back in Ephesians 3, verses 16 and 17, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith at you being rooted and grounded in love. Why do I reference that? Because notice what Paul writes there. He talks about the spirit being in your inner being. And then he says, Christ is in your inner heart. So who's in you? Yes, right? Uh, both, we could say. We could say both. We also have Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9. You, however, you, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So what am I trying to say? What am I suggesting that Paul is suggesting? Is that when we see this reference to the spirit, we're to understand it as the spirit of Christ. And so I don't think there's a strong delineation, delineation in the mind of Paul, but that's not to say that there is no difference between the spirit and Christ. There are distinct persons of the Trinity, but also let's remember there are triunity. The Trinity is a triunity, that it's more complex than just saying they're different persons, but they're also one. But let's get to the point. So how then does this all relate to Christ giving, uh, Christ providing for his church as it comes to his command to unity? Well, think about it this way. Christ descends to his people through the spirit to impart the gifts of unity. He gives gifts of grace and due measure to each person, and he fills all things. In other words, he brings them to completion. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has purposed all things to his own ends, and he gives gifts of grace as the means by which we may meet those ends. Right? So God doesn't just ordain the end. We talk about that a lot, right? We consider that a lot. God ordains the end. If you're saved, it's because God ordained that end. But let's also understand that he ordains the means to the end. He ordains the means of the interim to that end. For instance, in the case of salvation, the means of salvation is hearing the preaching of the gospel. 
And God ordains men and women to preach the gospel to the end that people are saved. Now, who does the saving? Not the people. Who does the saving? Not the persuasive preaching. God saves, but he ordains the means in the end. So too with our prayers, right? If God has ordained all things, then the end is certain. So why do we pray for anything? Let's just stop praying because God's going to do it all anyways. No, God also ordains the means. And the means for accomplishing his will is often the prayers of the saints. And if the saints didn't pray, the ends wouldn't be met. But God ordains the means and the end. This is to say that if Christ commands unity, he who ascended also descended, and in so doing, he fills all things. He accomplishes all things. So let us consider these things, that there is nothing lacking in your life that is necessary to be obedient to God. That's true for unity within the church, and that's true in general. But why do we sometimes feel that lack, right? Why do we sometimes say, the Lord is my shepherd, and I do want? Well, again, I'd go back to James 4 because it's fundamental. We do not have because we do not ask. And we ask and don't receive because we ask amiss. So let us pray in faith for the things that God has promised to give unto us. We may feel want. So what's another reason we may feel want? We may feel want because we never ask God for the things he, he calls us to ask him for. Another reason may be we feel that want because God is purging us of our sin. He's refining us. He's working on us. That wonderful hymn of John Newton is helpful here. It begins with asking for grace and faith. In the middle, it's a cry of help, a cry of desperation as pains and troubles and terrors descend. And it ends this way. John Newton wrote, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. So sometimes we feel want because we need to feel want. Sometimes the things we think we need are the, actually the things we want are measures of earthly joy and they are earthly treasures we amass to please ourselves. So again, to join this all together, Jesus gives gifts to his church, everything that is necessary for unity within the church. He gives graciously, he gives abundantly. Sometimes we don't have unity within the church because we don't pray for it. Sometimes we don't have unity within the church because we're seeking our own selfish ends. But God gives graciously and abundantly. He gives out of the he gives good gifts out of the abundance of his glory. Will he as a miser hold anything back good from his sons and daughters? And the answer is decidedly no. Nothing. 
And so to that point, let us turn to uh, the last verse in our passage today. And let us consider the ministers of Christ in verse 11. The ministers of Christ. If the beginning of our passage were seven shifts from the idea of unity of the church to the due measure of Christ's gift given to believers, now here we find another shift. We go from the consideration of the church as a whole to specific groups within the church. All right, so gifts, God gives, Christ gives uh, grace and due measure to each one of us, to now we have kind of these individuals these individual groups come together in verse 11. The first thing that we need to remark upon is our translation. Uh, and the ESV reads, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now that's one option to understand this verse. Uh, another option is that is the New American Standard or the King James Version, which renders the article that's translated in the English Standard Version, the, so the ESV has the apostles, the prophets, and it changes, uh, it translates that article as meaning some. So the King James Version has something like, uh, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some shepherds and teachers. Or you might have some to be. Um, the second translation, so that kind of translation, makes it seem like Christ gives spiritual gifts to some Christians to be these things. I don't think that that's a particularly helpful translation for what Paul is actually writing here. Uh, we know that Christ, uh, the Spirit, gives spiritual gifts to the people. Uh, and there are varieties of gifts. Again, we could look at 1 Corinthians 12. Go look at 1 Corinthians 12 later. You'll see that to be the case. But here in Ephesians, the issue is not the specific gifts given to the believers, but rather the issue is specific groups of ministers given to the church. And so I think the ESV does this a little bit better in highlighting that Christ gave the apostles the church. Christ gave the prophets to the church. Christ gave the evangelists to the church. Christ gave the shepherds and teachers to the church. What I am arguing that Paul is writing about here is that these things, these persons, these people, these ministers are given to the church for the sake of unity. These ministers are appointed by Christ and given to his people for their sake and benefit. And we'll see that, Lord willing, next week more as we unpack verse 11 and following. We'll actually look at verse 11 again then. But, but, but all that to say, so to ask the question and answer it, how does Christ provide for his church as it comes to his command to unity? He gives ministers and leadership over his people to this end. Right? We can consider the apostles and the prophets. They were given to lay the foundation of the teaching of Christ. Go back to Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saint and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets 
prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is built upon the foundation of faithful men who went before us, who heard directly from Christ, and who faithfully passed down to us his word in the scriptures. Who are the evangelists? Uh, to be an evangelist just means to one, one who goes forth and proclaims the good news, a herald of good news. And consider this. If Paul is saying that the evangelists are given for the sake of unity, for the unity of the body, what does that mean about part of what evangelists do? They preach not just to outsiders, not just to those who are not in the church. They also preach to those who are in the church. An evangelist doesn't just go outside the church and proclaim the good news, but he comes within the church and he proclaims the good news, and that builds unity. I'll just say as a small digression, and we won't go into it, but some would argue even that the evangelist here references something like the church planter. The last group is shepherds and teachers, and if you notice it's set out a little bit different, it's these shepherds and teachers, or some shepherds, or sh some pastors and teachers. And Paul actually, in the, in the Greek here, we don't see it. There's not two articles here. So it doesn't seem like Paul is writing that it's the shepherds and the teachers. Some argue then that what Paul is meaning here is that we're talking about pastor teachers. Like they're a combined office. We're talking one office, one group of people. here. Uh, others disagree with that kind of understanding and say that, no, we're talking about pastors and we're talking about teachers as two separate groups, but they're very closely linked. So at the very least, we can say what Paul is writing about here are people who are very closely linked. And we might say it this way. Pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. And we know that to be true in the church, right? That there are some people who are teachers and who are not pastors. But if you are a pastor, you have to be a teacher, right? That's one of the qualifications. That's the only actual non-character uh, qualification that Paul gives about who a pastor or an overseer should be. Able to teach. And what's the point of all this? That they lead the people of God to a specific end. And we'll see more about what that end is in the coming verses. But generally speaking right now, what we see is they lead the church to unity. Unity of faith, unity of knowledge, unity of understanding of Christ. God has given ministers to the church for the sake of the church. Your leaders are a gift to you. Now, we have to reckon with the reality of living in a fallen world because how many there are that use their God-given authority for evil purposes. That's true outside of the church, right? We could think of politicians, government, Romans 13. There is no government established that is not established by God. Does that mean all governments do what they're supposed to do? No, we know that there are many great and evil governments. We know our own government is evil and, and does evil things. But that's also true within the church. You don't have to look very far to see a man who is given God-given authority within the church using it in an evil way. Using it for selfish purposes. Using it so that way he can get another jet stream plane. 
or Maserati or whatever, you know, uh, whatever he wants, a mansion. We know that they do that. Uh, we could look to the scriptures and see this to be true too, right? King David is a glaring example of such abuse of authority. He's the king. He should be out in war, but he's back at home. He's looking out on the terrace and he says, oh, there's a lady over there bathing. I like her. She has a pleasant form. Call her to me. And he uses his kingly authority to have sex with her. He not only does that then, but he commits sin upon sin. He uses his God-given authority as king to kill the woman's husband to cover his adultery. And in so doing, not only does that man die, but other troops on the front line of battle also die. David abused his ordained right as king. And again, we don't even have to look very far maybe in our own lives to see how authority within the church has led to abuse in our lives and the lives of those we love. But does all this mean that we should not have any authority within the church? Does this mean that Christ gives bad gifts? No and no. What it does mean is we need to have accountability within the church. And members of Redeeming Grace Fellowship, this is part of your responsibility as a church member. You need to hold authority accountable. Pastors and teachers need to be held accountable to God by the congregation they serve. By the way, congregation authority can lead to sinful means too, right? Sinful ends. Uh, there are a replete number of church stories of congregations abusing a pastor. So let's understand and confess that any authority can be used for sinful ends. And so what do we do? Seek God, right? Seek Christ's likeness. Humbly submit ourselves to one another for each other's good. Because Jesus doesn't give bad gifts. Jesus doesn't give bad gifts. And men who abuse the authority that they have been vested with will be held accountable by God, if none other. So they may escape justice on earth, but there will be justice in heaven. And may God have mercy on us all. Jesus gives good gifts to his people to unite them in him. He gives grace to his people. He gives gifts to his people from, out of his fullness, from his fullness. He gives ministers to his people for their good. All this so that they be, may be united and grow together in faith and knowledge. Right? So, so understand this. When I ask the question, does Christ care about the command he gives to unity in his church? Yes, Christ does care, and yes, he gives provision that we may be united. He doesn't just say, okay, you all be united, good luck, go on. But no, he gives us grace, gifts, ministers to that end. So what are we to do with these gifts? First and foremost, right, let's thank God for them. Uh, let us sing and pray and speak with gratefulness to our Lord Jesus Christ for not just commanding us to unity, but also equipping us to that end. He gives us the grace, the gift of unity. 
We are called eagerly to pursue unity with one another, but it's also a gift, so let's thank God for that. Let us sing and pray and speak with thankfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ of his gift of grace unto each and every one of us in Christ in due measure. God knows what he is doing. He gives much to those who can do much with much. And he gives less to those who would be overwhelmed by much. And let us not forget that we are expected to be faithful with the grace that is entrusted to us, that is given to us. If we have much, then let us do much. And if we have less, let us do as much as we can with what we have. And let us give thanks to Christ Jesus for his kindness to us in every way. Let us sing and pray and speak with gratitude to our Lord Jesus Christ for the gifts of his ministers to us. Some of you know well the value of a faithful teacher or pastor. Some of you have been failed by your pastor. But let us thank God for the measure of his grace towards us and that he doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. We are not in the time of the judges. Uh, if you remember the, the time of the judges as the spiral uh, down of the state of the spiritual state of Israel and kind of the refrain that you hear over and over again in that is everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in the land. That's not true in the church. We have King Jesus sitting on his throne and then we have his uh, under shepherds who are given to us for our benefit. And let's hold them accountable. We are given good and godly authority to help us. But we also know that as we are men and subject to sin, let us hold that, that authority accountable. Let us also for ourselves heed the warning of the scripture, which warns us of wolves, of those who would seek to destroy and tear us. Right? So let's remember that not every authority who claims to be authority is an authority from God. Some are established seemingly by the devil. But let us not neglect the gifts we are given. Let us remember the parable of the talents. Those who are faithful in the things of Christ will hear, hear the words of Christ, Well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. And those who fail to be faithful to Christ will hear those words of terror. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We must realize that the gifts of God come with responsibility as to their use and their right use, right? Just as our children are a gift to parents, and they need to be tended well, so too are God's gifts to us as believers. We need to tend them well. So what measures of grace have you been given? And indeed, I may ask, have you been given a measure of grace? Because only those who believe in Christ Jesus have this grace. Only those in Christ Jesus can be united together and work towards unity. That doesn't happen in the world the way that we see described here in the book of Ephesians. That doesn't happen out there because they do not have Christ. The kind of radical unity which we are called to have as Christians is only possible when there is no relationship destroying sin or wrongdoing or evil. 
All those who are outside of Christ are at war with him. And if you don't trust in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are separated from all, including, and most importantly, God himself. Sin destroys your relationship with your Creator. You were made to dwell in peace with Him, but sin puts you at enmity, that is at war, at hatred with Him. And understand that that is not God's hatred of you, that's your hatred of God. And those who are at war with God will lose. He will lead the captives captive and into captivity. He will be victorious. And for you outside of Christ, that means death. That means the second death, hell. For you, that means bearing the wrath of God for all eternity for your sin. But Christ Jesus came to reconcile God and man. He came to make peace. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men, those who love him, right? He came to make peace by his death on the cross, by his broken body and his shed blood, sinful man can be forgiven and made right with his God. And all those who put their trust in Christ, who call upon his name in genuineness and repentance, meaning turning away from their sin and to him, will be saved, will be forgiven. You, friend, can be forgiven of your sins if you go to him confessing your sins. And if you don't, if you continue to live in disobedience to God and his commands, you will not receive any gift of his grace, only the gift of your just deserts, punishment in hell for all eternity. So turn to Christ Jesus today and come to know his good gifts of grace. Unite yourself with Christ and find yourself united with others from every tribe, tongue, and nation, praising God before his throne for all eternity, which isn't a bad thing, right? To sing songs to God, the one who saved us. Uh, I understand we may not all be singers at heart, but when love enters your heart, it does, uh, it does change you. So uh, let us pray and consider these things. Our Father in heaven, uh, we, we thank you. God, we thank you for the, Christ, uh, the, the gift of Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the person of Christ. We thank you, Christ, for your gifts given unto us, the gifts of grace, for your condescension to us, for your not holding on to uh, equality with the Father, but that you emptied yourself by taking on the form of a human that you were born in the likeness of man and that you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You bore the curse. You bore the curse of sin. You who are the creator of all things died, but you also rose from the grave and we thank you. We thank you for the victory that is assured to us, the hope that is assured to us in your resurrection. We thank you for this day that we have, the Lord's day, your day, O oh God, 
when we can come together and we can consider these things. Father, help us. Help us to be united in, in one faith, in one Lord, in one hope. God, we thank you for your gifts unto us of grace, of the full measure of the gifts of the Spirit and of the gifts of earthly ministers, earthly servants who serve our good. Father, we thank you for those faithful men who have been in our lives that have led us in the things of, of Christ and the things of your word. And Father, even as we grieve those men who have not been faithful unto you, God, we pray for mercy upon them that you would, that you would call them back to yourself, that they would quickly confess their sins and repent of them. Father, we pray for our own sakes, God, that you would create in us hearts of faithfulness, that you would renew our minds unto faithfulness. Father God, that we would be faithful unto every, everything that you have called us unto, everything that you have commanded us. Father, that we would be faithful to administer that gift of grace which you have given unto us, that we would glorify your name in all these things. God, we pray for those in our midst, those who we know who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Father God, would you have mercy upon them and would you send your spirit unto them to open their eyes to see. God, do whatever it takes that they might be saved and they might confess Christ as Savior. And Father, Put it into us to be bold, to proclaim Christ in every way and in all our ways. Oh, we pray this only and only because of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever. Amen.